Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is Season 1, That Miracle That Happened, That One Time, Episode 18, The Dreaded Agricultural Revolution, Jethro Tull and the Problem of Evil, Agricultural Revolution and Engineering. We're joined on the show this week by Joseph Ardennes. He's a combat veteran and has specific experience in the field that we're discussing today. And a really funny guy that it's great to spend time with. I'm going to attempt a thorough job on the agricultural revolution and leave you able to understand what happened. This will be a multi-episode arc. And we already had kind of an intro back in uh, episode 16. I'm going to do it now before getting into the Reformation any deeper. Understanding this background will help everything else make sense. It goes against the way most teaching on this is done. But no one has ever asserted you need Vikings, Pelagius, and Wycliffe to have a hope of approaching the miracle that happened that one time. Who else ever asserted that Britain hallucinated itself into good government? And this is the actual important stuff right here. We have to solve the problem of feeding ourselves before we can solve anything else. It's difficult because there were a lot of factors involved technological, social, and legal, and there was unrest, violence, and progress. If you try to study it on your own, you'll likely get misled by extraneous things that happened, the same as if you take an introductory course in school. But these extraneous things really weren't important until the 19th century, and I'll give you one example of this right now. Jethro Tull invented the seed drill in 1701. And this is one of the first basic facts you generally learn in a history course on the topic. And it doesn't matter at all. Why do you say that? Uh, The seed drill was a great idea, and it addressed an important problem. Planting was usually done by scattering seed by hand over the selected field after plowing and possibly after harrowing. Often a light harrow could be used to cover the seeds after. A harrow just disturbs the top area of soil and makes the plowed area more suitable for a seed bed. For example, to break up clods and make little depressions for seeds to collect. Sounds good so far. But it wasn't. The seeds would be scattered inefficiently. Some would be too close together, some too far apart. Go out and try scattering seeds by hand sometime and you'll see. Some of the seeds wouldn't be covered in soil at the right depth or at all, making them available to insects and birds. Seed is a couple bucks for a huge 25-pound bag or whatever. You waste a little. Oh, that's your 21st century mind talking, where even a person in their first job out of school is materially richer than a prince from earlier times. I know. I was just provoking you. Okay. You said a couple of episodes ago that grain yields were four or five grains per grain planted, so a little efficiency would help a lot in that case. Yes, thank you. That little efficiency let millions avoid death by starvation. Okay, now you're confusing me. You were using the seed drill as an example of something that didn't matter. A little patience, please. Jethro Tull's seed drill didn't solve this problem. I'm just describing the problem and trying to make it clear that it was a big problem. It might be less interesting than war with Spain, but no, that's a terrible example. England ruled by Castilian monarchs and grandees. Ah, that would have been a disaster. Epically world-changing. How about less interesting than the War of the Roses? but far more important. Okay, maybe that works. So, big problem. How did they solve it? Expensively. One way was to seed slowly, that's inefficient, with a hoe in hand, slowly, carefully drop the seeds and gently cover. 
Another was to do it efficiently, just broadcast your seeds, but employ small children to hang out during the daylight hours and run around scaring away birds. The original scarecrows were children. I doubt this worked all that well, but it was a widely used tactic. I've mentioned Emma Griffith's collection of writings by working-class people. People who lived in rural areas very often had this scaring-away birds, human scarecrows job as their first employment, starting when they were in the single digits in age. But after 1701, they had Jethro Tull's seed drill. No, they didn't. The seed drill of the time worked in one way. It spaced out the seeds just right, planted at the right gap, and covered them nicely. So what was the problem? Uh, two problems. The cost it was super expensive, and it never functioned long enough to be worthwhile. It would break down and wasn't easy to repair on the spot. So this kind of reliability plagued a lot of great new inventions of the time. 1701. I mean, various Italians invented it 150 years before, but had the same problem. Like, how many of Leonardo's great inventions almost never worked in practice? Brilliant design is one thing. Engineering and manufacture so that something actually works as it is designed is another. And, of course, uh, obligatory mention, the Chinese invented a seed drill some two, 3,000 years before. Like pretty much everything in the early part of the miracle. That's one reason I say that bringing all these disparate pieces together and sustaining it was a miracle. And with the Italians, well... And I mean, they had the promise, as discussed in episode 11, but the counter-reformation... Oh, they went the wrong way. Anyway, invention is one thing, engineering is another, and engineering is hard. Mechanical engineering was a vital part of the miracle. Jethro Tull didn't solve the problem of how to make a reliable seed drill. And this comes up a lot. The steam engine was invented even before the seed drill, but terribly unreliable at first. It was almost a 250-year journey to get the steam engine reliable and efficient enough to power a machine like a locomotive. The spinning jenny and cotton gin are two really simple machines. I mean, just look at a spinning jenny sometime. It's a contraption of wood and string going through holes in the wood. And really, that's it. A world-changing invention, and it's super simple. No reason the Greeks couldn't have invented it. A cotton gin's mostly metal, but also simple. Could have been invented in the ancient world. Another more fun example is Dungeons and Dragons. No reason it couldn't have been a big hit in the Bronze Age. Some people have taken this collection of examples to argue on Twitter and in blogs that maybe humans are not as naturally inventive as we like to think. And Joseph Henrich, who I've mentioned a couple of times, does argue that only Western people in post-Reformation times had the idea that being consistently inventive was even a thing. Remember a few episodes back, we said that the rhythms of agricultural life were annual? Maintaining things cyclically drove success. Only commercial countries, like Athens and the Italian republics, would benefit from thinking in terms of progress. Well, that's an interesting theory, but limited applicability. Engineering is the missing ingredient. With a spinning jenny, all the strings are moving under tension and getting it set up to work without one of the strings breaking all the time was a super hard engineering problem that took years of effort by hundreds of people to solve. A simple machine, but factorial math, says there are millions of combinations of string positions and tension levels 
even in a simple machine like this. And they all have to work for the machine to really function. Engineering was the answer, and it required the invention of the flying shuttle and the spinning mule to make it all really work efficiently. The sea drill wasn't actually reliable until over a hundred years after it was invented by Jethro Tull. I could say the same about steam engines. Besides, the early ones, breaking down all the time, exploding and killing their operators, they were so inefficient that the only place to use them economically was at coal mines, where you could have endless amounts of energy right there to power them. And that was fine, because the Newcomen engines, as they were called, were mainly used to pump water from mines, which, you know, being below ground level flooded a lot. So the steam engines helped a lot. Very useful there. It was a Frenchman named Pampin who invented the piston and cylinder engine in the 17th century. Wow. He only had a collection of super genius level collaborators, Huygens, Boyle, Leibniz. Getting those together might count as a small miracle also. Anyway, Newcomen made some practical improvements in a mechanical engineering way, enough so that a steam engine could be used without blowing up spectacularly every few weeks. Having the job of operating the first French steam engine meant you got to experience explosions up close and personal. So much turnover on that job. So Newcomen's engineering improvements were vital to the use of the engine. Constantly killing the operators was a bad idea. And people studied these engines carefully over the decades and made improvements. Smeaton made better seals and a few other changes improved efficiency by a factor of three. James Watt, who weirdly is sometimes credited with the idea for the steam engine, he was supposed to have thought of it by watching a tea kettle boil and noticed that the steam could move the lid. That's as dumb a story as some of the Anglo-Saxon history out there, and this makes me wonder if I should have been more direct in my critique in the early episodes, not just telling the story differently. Oh well, too late for that. Anyway, Watt's improvement of the Newcomen engine, already improved by Smeaton and others, was invented in 1765, but not ready for commercial use until 1774. Nine years for product development. What we call engineering again. Steam engines and spinning mules? Now aren't you deep into the Industrial Revolution? Oh yeah, I got carried away. I do that. We'll get back to the technology, the inventions later. We're talking about the Agricultural Revolution, and the answer wasn't gadgets like the sea drill or the amazing new plows that were developed. The great Rutherham Plow, what Rutherham used to be known for until they invented rape gangs protected by local government and political correctness. What a revolting story that is. Anyway, I can't talk about that. The Rutherham Plow wasn't widely manufactured until the Industrial Revolution. The plow allowed heavy soils to be plowed by a single horse, but we're still in the period before that when you need a team of oxen to plow a furrow in heavy soil. So not technology then. You realize you spent most of the podcast merely saying what the agricultural revolution is not, right? Yeah, I mean, we did get some good background in there and prepared the ground for a complicated story that is to come. But hold on, I'm not sure I would agree that it is not a story of technology because technology plays a huge role, just different technology. And I have a critique of the way the subject is sometimes taught, so there's that. Remember a couple episodes ago I used the line, the desire for spice has driven a great deal of world history? Sure. Well, that was introducing the concept that demand-driven changes are important too. It's not just all about inventing things. 
that is going to play a role here too. Part of my critique with the way the agricultural revolution is taught is that it happened in England and at some point resulted in English farmland having an 80% higher yield than on the continent, Germany, France, Spain, etc. And that's the story to tell. The four-field farming system is even called the Norfolk system, as if it had been invented in Norfolk, England. But remember that 80% now. 80% is a big deal. But this is really a Dutch or Flemish story. I'll say Dutch for both. They invented all this stuff because they were the rich people. They engaged in industry, pre-miracle industry and trade. Remember, twice the percentage of the workforce was in industry than was normal in Europe. They could defeat Spain and the Habsburgs when Spain and the Habsburgs were still at the top of their game. The intellect released by Calvinism, the fiery energy of a hot new ideology accidentally discovering that they were the world's naval superpower, even if they were only a speck on the European map. They also solved the problem of feeding themselves, breaking free of the grain trap, the Malthusian trap. And Denmark had really good numbers too. I await a good study on why, and assume for now that their tight-knit commercial connections with England and the Netherlands bound all three in a similar use of agricultural know-how. If you know better, email me at herald at hangingwithhistory.com. Because of the mother trade, which was about catching and preserving fish and selling it for grain from the Baltic. I think there was a wizard involved somehow, but I'm not really sure. That was a big part of it. Another was improvement in transportation infrastructure, and that's a technology story. This is vital. With 16th century roads, it was uneconomic to transport agricultural goods more than about 10 miles. There's a mathematical model that calculates that a 16th century town supplied by its own hinterland could never grow above 10,000 people, and of course would suffer horribly during famines. It's no joke when historians refer to cities in medieval and early modern times as population sinks. From plagues to food shortages, a town, well, the people of the town, in the situation of relying on its own hinterland, was in a very precarious situation. The mother trade worked because the Dutch made shipping so efficient. The technology breakthrough was their grain barges, that they could ship bulk commodities like grain efficiently enough. More than that, though, they made miles and miles of canals. English accounts of the time probably exaggerate, but claim that basically every hamlet in the United Provinces was connected by the canal network and almost every farm. By the 17th century, the network was so well developed that canals were being built merely to shorten river journeys. Water transport was so much cheaper than overland that limits on the size of the hinterland that could support a city were overcome. And also, canal technology could be used to drain the famous polders that made new land available for cultivation and pasture. Something else the Chinese did first. Of course. The 15th and 16th centuries were a time of considerable technological development in canal building, locks, sluices, and dike building. And also a time of social building, ways to cooperate on water management, a social coordination problem of considerable complexity with lots of temptations to be a free rider or a defector in game theory terms. The Dutch managed to overcome this in the absence of an outside central authority requiring it. Maybe there's a human sense in which only Hobbit freely cooperating under local authority solves the social monkey free rider problem. This stands out as a major achievement 
because social coordinations of this kind usually end in failure whenever monkeys are involved. And I wish I could tell you what the secret sauce was. Nowhere have I found a better description than a high-trust culture developed under necessity. I don't love that answer because it is fully general. It logically requires a corollary that almost always there's some innate human tendency to screw up social coordination problems that require the development of trust and assumption of responsibility by individuals. So if that was the right answer for the Dutch, what's the wrong answer for everybody else? Trust and social expectations, how you value yourself, how others value you, all contributed to the work for the Dutch because they needed to be seen contributing, and eventually this led to it being seen as absolutely abhorrent to free ride. Status could be gained by doing more than your fair share. Well, high-trust cultures are so great, great enough to defeat Spain, the world superpower of the time, and outcompete other cultures as well, you would expect more of them, and yet we hardly ever see them outside the Christian West, and seldom enough within. And that's probably as close as we get to the problem of evil this episode. Circling, circling. I have a hard time closing in. Even after bringing up the Rutherum rape gangs facilitated by local government. Ugh. Too many listeners right now would have been complicit. Same is true for other examples. The Reformation unleashes great social movements. Great social movements tend toward evil. Sterner, Conrad, and Burke explained why convincingly. But how much time do I want to let the podcast wallow in evil when what we have is fundamentally a story of the greatest evils avoided? I haven't figured it out yet. Anyway, it's difficult to overstate the value of lowered transportation costs using water in a world so racked with poverty. This little statistic comes from 1800, but illustrates the point for the whole period. It costs the same to ship a ton of material 32 miles by medieval-quality road as it did to ship the same ton across 3,000 miles across the Atlantic. Think about that for a minute. No wonder it made sense for the Dutch to invest so much in canals and shipping. No wonder that investment, social as much or more than financial, made the Dutch number one. There's a lot more to be said about the agricultural revolution. You are probably waiting to hear the words enclosure, four-field crop rotation, and nitrogen. And you'll hear about that and the deregulation of food markets, the population boom, arable land shortage, and grinding poverty as a rising population translates into rising income, but not immediately into greater per capita income. For that to happen, a miracle would have to occur. But you already know that. For now, remember the 80% better number. The English, the Dutch, and the Danes did 80% better than everyone else. Thank you, Joseph, for coming on the program. I really appreciate it. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> oh, and, and we're going to skip conversations with Cami this week. Although I know she wanted to hear Joseph Ardenz. Uh, we are going on a little vacation, a couple of vacations, you know, a uh, COVID-type vacation. So we're staying in the state. No international travel for us this year. And I'm really sorry we're not going to be uh, meeting our friends in Denmark and our family in Norway. I'm certain we'll have to skip next week. 
hopefully not two weeks. Thank you for the really nice note. I really appreciate it.